you have your Bibles this morning and you would turn to Mark chapter 8 verses 34 uh, through ver- chapter 9 verse 1. Mark chapter 8 verses 34 through 9 verse 1. Now you may notice this is the immediately following passage. Uh, the, the passage that immediately follows what we talked about last week. So for some context before we get into reading this scripture this morning, uh, last week we, we talked about when Peter was asked the question uh, by, by Jesus, who do people say I am and then who do you say I am? And he answered, you are the Messiah. And so this is the, the, the place we're coming from. And, and Peter then, when Jesus was telling him about the necessity of him going to the cross and, and what would happen in his resurrection, Peter rebuked Jesus and rebuked him, said, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So immediately following this passage is where we'll be picking up this morning. So if you'll follow along in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 34. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with with the holy angels. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we want to thank you for this time that we have to gather, this time we can come together to look at your word, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to see clearly what it says to us this morning. That what we want it to say, what we may think it says, and, or what we may want and desire would, would fall away, but we would only be focused on what you would have us to do, and what you would say to us this morning. Father, I pray that you would be glorified today and that we would hear your word and be obedient and faithful in following you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in the first verse, we see an answer to, if you want to follow Jesus, it says he calls the crowds along with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus says three things. If you want to follow him, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. So the first thing we see is that we are called to deny ourselves, deny ourselves. Well, that's very opposite from what we hear in the world. We live in a world that is obsessed with the self. There are ad campaigns that are devoted to the idea of bettering yourself, focusing on what you want, building up what you want, doing whatever makes you feel good. A couple slogans that that lean into this idea, L'Oreal is because you're worth it. Because you're worth it, you should spend extra money or you should make sure you get that brand because it's the best one for you, because you are worth it. Or if you go to Burger King, you can make sure that you have it your way. 
because your way is the right way. And Sprite, at least it used to be, is obey your thirst. So it's this idea of whatever you want, your desires, what you have is what matters the most. This idea of of treating yourself or, or splurging because, well, you are what matters the most. And Sheryl Crow sang in a song, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. This is a very deceptive way of thinking. The idea that we are good and deserving and have good intentions and and are naturally deserving of, of gratifying our desires is the opposite of what we see in Scripture. The world would tell you that your desires and what you are living for and the way you want to do things naturally is the right way to live. But what we see in Scripture is that naturally we are what? We are sinful. We have a sinful nature. And if we gratify our desires, if we do the things that make us happy, we will most always be disobeying God. If we give in and follow what we want and only what we want, we are not obeying Christ. Jesus said, deny yourself. It's a very hard thing to realize. And and even the the non-Christian world would tell you, but especially when we come to following Christ, it's not about you. When we follow God, when we follow him, when we seek to be a part of what he's doing, we are having to deny ourselves, to lay that aside and be a part of something greater than ourselves. Following Christ is not about you. You benefit. You get to know the God who created you. You get to experience love that's greater than any other love you can experience. There are great benefits to you in it. But its focus is not you. Its focus is not us. It is about God and following him. Our faith is not about us. So we deny ourselves and then we take up our cross Now, as Christians, we have a great affection for the cross. If you look at the stained glass here, we have a cross. It's beautiful. The light comes through, and many of you may have cross jewelry, and at your home, no doubt, there are many who have crosses as decoration. Why do we have these? I think it's for the same reason we're taking communion later, in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. You see, because what what Jesus did on the cross is beautiful. The display of love, it's an act of affection for his people that were sinful and far off. But the reality of what the cross is, is not beautiful. What the cross meant to these people who heard, especially prior to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, it was an instrument of torture, of execution. So Jesus says, take up your cross. To these people hearing him, that would have been a very strange statement. Take up your cross. It's an instrument of suffering and shame and and that was not something to be celebrated. It would be akin to us of, of take up your electric chair, take up your guillotine, something that is only used for for death and for punishment. And and Paul talks about this in in the letters. uh, He says that the cross is a stumbling block the stumbling block to the Jews because they, they said that as cursed as any man who hangs on a tree and his foolishness to the Gentiles. 
But still he tells them to take up your cross. So what does it mean to take up your cross? What does it mean? It sounds good. As Christians with, with the idea of, of the cross being what Jesus died on, we like the, the idea of taking up your cross, following Jesus, being like him. But I think there's a little bit more than it, that it indicates for us, and that's the indication that like Christ, Christians are called to a life that will include suffering. There will be times where we may have to suffer on behalf of Christ. Now, we don't like to suffer, do we? We have done so many things in our lives to make it to where we don't have to suffer. I want you to think about your car that you came here in today. There are so many features and and bells and whistles that are in cars today for what? For our comfort, our convenience. I, I, I know that I'm fairly young, but I'm close to being one of the last generations that will understand the idea of rolling down the window, right? We have electric windows, power locks. Everything is for convenience. Because even the smallest amount of suffering, we don't like. We don't want that. So how hard is it to hear our Savior say, take up your cross, take up your instrument of suffering, be like me, deny yourself, which may lead to suffering. This was expected in the early church. Those who heard Jesus, the ones who followed him, Almost every single one of his disciples was martyred, was killed for the faith. The first martyr we remember and and read in Acts chapter 7 was Stephen, who for proclaiming Christ was stoned to death. And Peter, as far as tradition states, took this very literally and was crucified. But he he didn't view it as as himself being worthy of being crucified like Christ and was crucified upside down. Suffering should not be avoided, but is how our faith is refined and is matured, but is by when we encounter difficult things. When you do things in your life and you think about all the things you've come through, if you look at the things that have transformed you and changed you the most, that have made you the, that have had the most positive impact on your life, most likely it was coming through a difficult time. Difficulty and suffering produces good things for the believer. Because when you're faced with a hardship, you have one of two options. You can be refined and overcome the hardship, or you can succumb to it. You can fail and fall. The promise we have from our God is that there is not anything that we will face that he will not empower us to overcome. He will not, there is not any hardship that we will face that will be able to separate us or take us away from the love of God. And so all a hardship can do if we will cling to Christ and cling to our God is to mature us and refine us so that we can follow him more faithfully. So hardship and suffering should not be avoided, but instead we are called to embrace it, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Now this is, as we, as we understand, an active engagement, an active participation in following Christ. This is walking along with him, going where he is going, being a part of what he is doing. And it's not unlike any other commitment that we make. You don't say that you're going to do something and then not do it. If you are going to follow Christ, you follow him, learning what he calls you to do, learning what he calls you to do and what he expects you to do, obediently following through in what he calls you to do, and then becoming 
more like him. So if you deny yourself, you embrace suffering, you take, on the, take up your cross, and then you follow. You're obedient. You look at what he's calling you to do, and you look at what he is doing, and you participate in what he is doing. And that's all in just the first verse of this passage. The next thing we see is the false hope of this life. The false hope of this life going on in verses 35 through 37. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? The first thing we see is this idea that if it almost seems counterintuitive. If you want to save your life, you are going to lose it. If you want to save it, you're going to lose it. I think this is a very common idea that you actually see a lot in media and a lot in the culture that we live in. It's not a, a foreign thing for the very thing you want most, chasing after that, producing the exact, op, the exact outcome you wanted to avoid. So an example from, from a movie series that I enjoy greatly is, is the Star Wars series. Now in the prequels, which many people did not like, we see the story of, of Darth Vader as he is young, and Anakin Skywalker was what he was known as then, and he has a vision that his wife is going to die in childbirth. More than anything, he wanted to avoid his wife's death. And so he goes through every option and every available avenue he can, even venturing into the dark side with the promise that he could save his wife. Leads him to do some terrible things. He becomes a person that is unrecognizable. And what ends up happening is that when his wife sees who he's become, he ends up being the one that causes her death. And so seeking to prevent it, he caused the very outcome he wanted to avoid. This is what Christ tells us. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life because of me in the gospel will save it. We cannot be so concerned with preserving this fragile and temporary life that we forfeit and, and miss out on what is going to be an eternity. You know, Francis Chan had an illustration that I saw that, that beautifully described this. He had a rope. He said, imagine that this rope is infinitely long. And on the end, he had a little eyelet, almost like what you'd have at the end of your shoestring, and it was red. And he said, this little short part is like our life now. And what we do, what people do, is we live parts of this life and say, well, I'm going to work really hard for this part so that when I get to this part, I can live really good and I can have a good life and a comfortable life. And they focus so much on how this little bitty part is spent and how they can preserve that and have the best part that they forget about eternity that is to come. If our primary concern is on extending this life, living this life in a way that makes us comfortable, living this life in a way that we enjoy the most, we are missing out and, and forgetting about what matters more, which is the eternity that is to come. Because this is a mindset that does not deny yourself. 
This is a mindset that says, preserve yourself, empower yourself, live your best life now. This is a life that says that you need to make sure that you are okay. But what does Christ say? That if you lose your life for Christ, you will save it, you will find it. If you deny yourself, you embrace suffering. And, and he even says here that you may die because of, what, of Christ, because of the gospel. You may die and, and you will fall because of that. But really what we understand is that if this short temporary life comes to an end because of the gospel, because of being faithful to who God is, that's not a tragedy It's not a tragedy at all. That's a beautiful thing because that person is encountering God, is following him. One of the most beautiful illustrations of this that I have heard was from a sermon that that John Piper shared at at one of the first passion conferences, which was for college students. He shared a story of two missionaries that were in their 20s and they went overseas and they were killed. They died at a young age, sharing the gospel. And he said that many people would look at that and say, well, that's a tragedy. And he said, no, that's not a tragedy. And he said, do you want to hear a tragedy? And he read a clipping from Reader's Digest, talking about a couple that lived their life and had early retirement and lived and, and spent the rest of their life hunting shells, and and that was how they lived their life. And he said that was a tragedy. Because they had this life, this time where they can serve Christ and serve him and follow him, but instead they decided to focus on what they wanted and what empowered them, what maximized their comfort in this life. So to lose our life for Christ to put ourselves in danger, to deny ourselves, to embrace suffering. It makes no sense to us. We don't want to do it. But that is what is genuinely the best thing for us. Because in denying ourselves, being selfless, not, not following what we want, is really how we will get the thing that is best for us. It's the idea of being selfless. And following Christ. And, and something that's important, I, I was once told that selflessness is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Selfless, selflessness is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking, less of your, thinking of yourself less. It doesn't mean you have to not have desires or not have feelings, but that you care more about what God wants and what will benefit others rather than what benefits you. And then we see the last question that he has here what can anyone give in exchange for his life? I think the question we have to ask is, can any person, can any one of us save our own life? Are we the ones capable of providing salvation? Are we we the ones capable of delivering ourselves from the death that is to come? Because we are all, everyone in this room will face death at some point. No matter how hard we try to prolong it, no matter how hard or how far medical technology may come, we will still face death. Can any of us prevent that? No. Matthew 5, 36 reminds us that we cannot even change one color of the hair on our head. Now what we can do, 
This is what the world has gotten really good at. We can pretend like we can do that. We can pretend that we have the power, that we are the, the captain of our own fate, that we are the captain of our destiny, that we can control what's going on. The world will convince you of that. It likes that idea. We can pretend that we have these things figured out. Well, we can't, by our own power, decide whether one hair on our head is, is, is white or black, but we can dye our hair with temporary dye. But when it grows out, what, what's it going to reveal? It was fake. It was a cover-up. It wasn't really what was going on. We can live our life and, and make the best choices to live a long, healthy life, but what still will come for every person? And that is death. And the better we get at fooling ourselves, the harder it is to realize how dependent we are on God. God sustains all things. It's a truth that we must understand. God sustains all things, is that the root of all things, holds all things together. And I think if there's ever been a time in our lives where we've understood the fragility of this life, it's been in the past year and a half. As we've seen how out of nowhere a virus can arise and derail our lives, change everything and how we knew it. How one boat getting turned a little sideways can change what's available in the grocery stores around the world. And how we see the prices of things around us going up and down with every little change and every shift because this world is very temporary and very fragile. We may have built some comfort for us ourselves. We may have built some some ideas that things are going well and we can control it. But at the root of it all, it's God that sustains it. And it's only by his grace that we wake up each morning. And we must follow him and, and follow him in our lives rather than what we want. And then we get to the last few verses of this passage where we see the idea of shame and of glory. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. We also don't like shame. Shame doesn't feel very good, and we typically do whatever we can to avoid shame. And I think that for that reason, shame is often a great motivator, right? The idea that you might be embarrassed or you might feel shame is often why people do things. The idea that you might go somewhere and you might have embarrassed yourself and let everyone down will, will motivate you to follow through. And shame can also be a motivator in the wrong way. The idea that somebody might look down upon you for following Christ, the idea that someone may view you differently, someone may, it may hurt your relationship if you share the gospel with them. It may make them not may make them cross by and, and kind of act like they didn't see you if you if you share with someone about Christ. Shame can motivate us not to do things as well. But Jesus says. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I want to share a few stories with you of those who, shore, who, who bore the shame of Christ in this life. 
The first I want to share with you is Justin Martyr. He was born in 100 AD to pagan parents. He was not a Christian. His parents were not Christian. He became a philosopher, as many in the time of the Roman Empire found themselves being, trying to find out the reason for life. What is the, the, the answer to these questions about why we are here? Why does life matter? But he found everything to be lacking. Until he was around 30 years old, he heard the gospel and felt a, a fire and a truth to be found in the gospel. And coming from his background, he tried to make the faith rational. He wrote the first apology to the emperor in which he explained the Christian faith. And, and I don't know if you know at this time, the, the Christian faith was viewed as a cult and they were put to death for following it. If you were found to be a Christian, you were convicted of these things and, and you were put to death. So he was trying to explain that the, the Christian faith was really the best faith and, and should be regarded as a, a, a religion that could be practiced without punishment of death. And he was arrested and was told by the prefect to recount his faith and sacrifice to other gods. And his response, I think, which, which holds on to the promise that we see here, that if you lose your life for Christ, that you will find it. If we are punished for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, we hope to be saved. So he bore the shame of Christ in this life. He, he was rejected and despised in the same way our, our Savior was rejected and despised. And he was beheaded. And for this reason is, is why we know him as Justin Martyr, because he was a martyr for Christ. And then we see the Reformers, a very different world that they live in, but a world where the Christian faith has given, given way to the power of structure and, and, and authority of, of the Catholic Church that has departed from, at this time, the faith and are not following God, but are, are telling people and exercising authority for the enriching of those in charge. And I don't know if you know, but today would also be referred to as uh, Reformation Sunday. It's the day when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. Because November 1st would have been All Saints Day or All Hallows Day. And, and today, October 31st, would have been All Hallows Eve, which we now know as Halloween. But he knew there'd be a lot of people in church that day. Because it was a day kind of like Christmas and Easter where a lot of people would go to church, even if they didn't go regularly. So he, not, he nailed the 95 problems that he had to the church door. So he was one of the reformers. But another one, William Tyndale, which many of you may have heard that name. That sounds familiar, Tyndale, Tyndale Bible Publishers. He was one of the first to endeavor to publish the Bible in English and print it for the common man. And he was in Britain when he first wanted to do this, but he found out very quickly that this was not a welcome thing to do. You see, at this time, the church did not want people to have the Bible. It's a very strange thing to think. He was a religious outcast for this, on the run from the church. And one of his quotes that he says, let, us not, let it not make thee despair, neither yet discourage thee, O reader, that it is forbidden thee in pain of life and goods, or that it is making, made breaking of the king's peace or treason unto his highness to read the word of thy soul's health. For if God be on our side, what matter maketh it who be against us, be they bishops, cardinals, and popes. And ultimately what he's saying here, don't let it bother you that, that reading the Bible, having the Bible is, is illegal because it doesn't matter who's against you if you're following God. 
doesn't matter if they're, in this case, bishops, cardinals, and popes. Those who claimed religious authority were the very ones persecuting those trying to live a faithful life, trying to follow God. He was eventually arrested. He was given a chance to recant because he was being tried as a heretic for publishing the Bible. He did not, and he was hanged and burned at the stake. The beautiful thing about these two stories is though that they, they embrace suffering in this life, they are put to shame before people. They are now experiencing the embrace of, of Christ's love in eternity and are with him in glory. The shame and reproach that we faith, face is so little compared to these men and the many other men and women who have borne the shame of the cross. I, I want you to think about that, to think about what they faced knowing that if they continued to do what they were doing, they would die. And I want you to think, if you were here, not this Wednesday, but the last, we took an inventory of our time and, and how we spent our weeks. Do we do anything in our lives that, that would convict us of being a Christian? If we were in this time period, would we put, be put to death for our faith? Or are we living such a nominally Christian life where we are Christian only in name <coughs> that they wouldn't care? Are you living your life in a way that takes risks and takes chances for Christ? Are you living your life in a way where you are trying to glorify him in all that you do, regardless of the shame it might bring to you, regardless of whether it's what you want or what makes you most comfortable? I think... The comfort that we feel and the security that we have built for ourselves often deters us from living a life that's obedient to Christ, from living a life that glorifies him. But the day is coming when we will face greater persecution. You can already look around and see the tide changing. You can see how people are not as warm to the idea of you being a Christian as they once were, where there are certain places where if you were to say you were a Christian, you might be called a bigot. You might be called a person that is hateful. Are we willing to, to bear any shame that people may give us on behalf of Christ? The reality is you will either bear the shame on behalf of Christ in this life, or you will experience Christ's shame of you in the next. You will either bear shame on behalf of Christ in this life or you will experience Christ's shame of you in the next. Because it is coming. The glory of God is coming. Christ is going to return. And that's what we see in verse 1 of chapter 9. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Now, I'll be honest with you, when I was first really trying to take my faith more seriously and reading through, I think it was actually the, the part of this, it was in Matthew, the, the account in Matthew that, that shares this verse. But it was difficult for me because upon first reading, it would seem to, to, to sound like Jesus is saying, there are people there that would be alive when he comes back. And it was difficult for me to understand and difficult for me to read and, and, to, and to comprehend, but Upon examination of this, we know that Christ does not lie to us, and we know that he is faithful. What he is saying is that there are some of them there who will not 
taste death before they see him die and come back again to, to resurrect from the dead. Now, the other question we might ask, well, if that's something that's so close, why would he say that some of you will not taste death? Wouldn't it be more logical to think that most of them would not taste death or maybe none of them at all? But we do know there was at least one person there who did not experience the resurrection of Christ. That person was Judas because he betrayed Christ. When he realized what he had done, he hanged himself. And so he delivered Christ over. And sometime around the same time that Christ would have died, he died. But he did not rise again. Jesus rose again. What we realize here is that the same way they got to experience the glory of Christ's resurrection is that we will experience the glory of Christ's return or the glory of living with him in eternity. And I know as the world has been kind of turned upside down lately, it's, it's been much more popular to realize that Christ is going to return. That a lot of the things he said would be the markers of him coming again have happened. But I think we need to make sure that we are careful not to get too caught up on focusing on when Christ will return, but rather make sure that we are ready when he does. Because if you heard those stories I just shared with you, things were far worse for Christians 500 years ago, 2,000 years ago. All of, this is probably the most comfortable time Christians have had. And while things are getting worse, and Christ is always a day closer to returning, we can't let focusing on when that will be distract us from being prepared and ready for his return by living faithfully. But ultimately, we know that this glory is coming. We know that this return, we know that this, this eternal life is coming where there'll be no more death or crying or pain anymore. No more disease. No more COVID. No more cancer. No more anything that, that may separate us or end this life. Eternal life. And most importantly, eternal life with our God. Eternity spent in the presence of of our Savior, without sin and shame to hold us down, just experiencing who He is. And that is what we have to look forward to. That is what motivates us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him, to live a life that puts what He would have us do and, and is obedient to Him over what we would want. But one of the most profound questions I've ever been asked about our view of heaven and when heaven is to come is, would you be all right with heaven if God wasn't there? Would you be all right with heaven if God wasn't there? Because I think this reveals the true affection of our hearts. If we only want the blessing and not the one who gives the blessing, who are we focused on? Ourselves. If we want God to give us good things, but we don't want the, the God who gives them to us, who are we focused on? Ourselves. So as we come to this time of invitation, I want to challenge you. Have you done that? Have you denied yourself? Put what God would have you to do. Put all desire of self and, and what you would want aside to follow him. Have you, have you taken up your cross, embraced the suffering that may come? Have you followed Jesus? How can you be more faithful this morning? And, or maybe today you have never made that decision. For the very first time, you may need to trust in Jesus. 
All of the things that you've done in this life have have led you to to sin and to, to be separated from him. But what Jesus has done for you is to make a way for you to be made right with him. Will you trust him this morning? Let us pray. Father, I wanna thank you for this day that you've given us and the opportunity we have to worship you. God, I pray that you would help us to view ourselves and, and think of ourselves less to deny ourselves to take up our cross and to follow you. I pray that you would help us to live a life that is glorifying to you, a life that is focused on the, the life that is to come in eternity with you and ra- rather than being focused on this life today. God, for the believers in this room, I, I pray that you would help them to see you and, and seek you more faithfully. And Father, if there's, no, if there's someone here that does not know you, I pray that you would help convict them today to turn to you to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray.